diving right in for a somewhat uh, quick and steady review of some things that we covered last week to lead us up to uh, a type of conclusion uh, to this particular question. We looked last week at the question, why did God command the killing of entire nations? Why did God condemn intermarriages of Israelites with some nationalities? Why did God choose Israel above other nations? Is God racist? It may be that you and I have read the scriptures for most of our life. It may be in that that we have grown comfortable and with certain passages and we read right through them and give little to no thought. Or on the other hand, it may be that you have dug deeply into these and you have very, very good and sound being fair to God, who he is, leaving truth intact, answers. That's what we're wanting to do. Now, allow me to mention the goal of this particular lesson is to preach to the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. It's not to present this in the same exact way that we would if we were talking to an atheist that might very well have sincere questions. I'm simply saying to you, that's not our approach. Tonight, we're talking to Christians. We're talking to individuals who already have a belief in the Almighty God and some level of trust in the Almighty God. And we will move forward in this. Why did God command killing of entire nations? We mentioned last week the challenge to discuss this topic with considering the entire narrative of the Scripture just picking out parts as if it has nothing to do with the entire narrative of scripture is not fair to scripture. And then this one is huge, leaving God complete and whole with his character intact. In other words, if we're not careful what we do when we discuss difficult topics sometime that relate to who God is, we tend to interject, well, if I was God, I wouldn't do this. And then we go back in and we discuss that particular topic as if we were God. That won't work. If we're going to talk about this, we need to leave the narrative as a whole and we need to leave God who he is. And we'll get to a little bit of that if you disagree with him in the minute, what you've got to figure out you're going to do with that. And uh, skipping on to the next, uh, because we're trying to review here and I'm trying to go a little bit faster. There are three kind of premises that we laid in uh, the, the beginning of this lesson. One is consider this, who has the authority to create a standard of morality? That is of ultimate importance if we're going to be able to answer this question and if we're going to allow truth to remain truth. Uh, if, if you can figure out a, a standard morality that works for all nations at all times, perhaps you're God. But if not, surely most of us here as believers in God would agree, well, God is the only one that has the right to create a standard of morality. Now, this part is huge, okay? And we'll get to this as we have to all apply it a little bit later on. What if you disagree with what God calls moral and just? What if you disagree with the justice of God? Does that weaken God, does that weaken the standard of morality? Or does that mean God still remains who he is? His standard of morality and justice remains what it is. And all that's revealed there is that you or I disagree with God. Now that's a very, very important point. 
Sometimes we almost flippantly say, oh, well, well, I disagree with that. If I, if I was God, that's a dangerous, casual approach to have toward God. Number two, do you trust God? If not, who do you trust to create a standard morality? Number three, do you try to understand things only in a modern perspective? Are you willing to allow the Old Testament things to remain in the narrative and in the timeline in which they are? In other words, there are things that God did with the children of Israel and had the children of Israel to do toward other nations that there is no other time period like that. It's just not like that in New Covenant times. And so to to try to just snatch that out and say, well, that can be this way today or that is that way today is not being fair to some of the unique situations that are in the Old Testament. And so we come back to this idea of trusting God and we try to give a few reasons why it would be wise to trust God even when we do not fully understand things. And we gave the example of a child and an adult in the park and it's time to go. And the child fully believes that it is best for them to stay in the park. But the adult, the adult knows the past, the present and the future and the broader situation better than the child knows it. The adult knows what else has to be done that afternoon and that evening. The adult knows that there has to be hygiene taken care of, supper taken care of, homework taken care of. The adult knows we have to get up early in the morning for work and for school and etc. And so the adult makes a decision that actually is a better, perhaps we could even say the right decision because the adult knows the bigger picture. We must realize that God knows the past, the present and the future. But also God knows earthly and eternal. And so when God sees something that is right, it very well may be at times that we can kind of scratch our head and say, you know, I just don't really understand how that's right. And you know what? That'd be fair. Because in this analogy, we're pretty much like the kid at the playground compared to what the adult would know. It's important to realize that if you think you're going to see everything the exact way God sees it, you've put yourself on the level of God. There's some things we just have to trust. There's some things that we have to trust who God is. And even though we don't fully understand, we trust God. A second thing that we mentioned, and, and it's not really a second, it's just illustrating perhaps the very same thing from another direction. And that is back when uh, we used to watch Willie Coyote and the Roadrunner. You know, there were just some laws of gravity and various laws that they just were not like the laws you and I live by. And you know, one of the great ones was how anytime they seemed to run over a cliff, they would get over the edge of the cliff and then they would stop and they would look over at the audience, you know, like looking over at the camera. And remember, there was always that pause. I don't know if you've ever fallen, but it doesn't work that way, does it? You know, you don't step out on the edge of a ledge or leave the edge of a ledge and then look over and say, oh, I made a terrible decision just then and then fall. Well, it very well could be that God is seeing an eternal perspective that it may be that some are not looking at all at the same perspective. And so when they see some things God does from an eternal perspective, those that are looking simply from a worldly perspective may not ever be able to understand it if they stay on that worldly perspective. It could be that there are some things that the divine perspective completely understands that as long as we're on the earth in this flesh that we will not fully understand. 
We must realize that as much as we strive to understand God, we will never be God. And so there will not be that same level of understanding. So we tried to give this kind of illustration. Is it morally wrong to stab someone? Well, we tend to believe that stabbing someone is very painful and it shortens their life. But what if you saw it from a different perspective? In other words, that's what we always see. But what if for some strange reason that stabbing someone felt really good and prolonged their life? Well, would it then not be morally wrong? And so could there be some things that we see from one perspective that God sees from another perspective? And if we could see it from God's perspective, we'd say, that makes perfect sense. I fully understand that. You know, another example that I didn't give you last week, I'll throw it in for Tim Martin's benefit. Um, you know, what if, what if you're having open heart surgery and, and they put you on a bypass machine? Now, one of the things that they're going to tell you to prepare you for that is you'll be given medicines to stop your heartbeat. And a lot of analogies, that would be horrible news, wouldn't it? Now, wait a minute. You're, you're going to do what? Yeah, we're, we're going to stop your heart from beating. And most of the time we'd say, I, I don't want you to stop my heart from beating. That, that's, that sounds really, really bad. But you don't understand this analogy. This analogy is going to be really good for you. Because we're going to be able then to perform a surgery and then to bring your heart back into beat, into rhythm again, and things are going to be good. You see, there are some things, if we lift them out of a narrow context, it would seem to be one way. But if we understand them in the broader and the very real context, we say, well, now, now I understand Listen, I'm not suggesting to you that I can explain to you all the reasons that God had Abraham to offer Isaac upon the altar. But I can assure you of this, that God saw it from a perspective that was going to be best, not only for Abraham, but for believers in God for the ages to come. Because God continually went back and used Abraham as an example of being willing to offer his son to show a man of great faith. Now, we also know that Abraham had a different per perception of God, a different perspective of God than just God being another human being. Because we know what he said in Genesis 22 and we know what's recorded of him in Hebrews 11th chapter. He didn't think God was going to allow Isaac to remain dead. He thought God was going to resuscitate him. He, he, he points that out by saying in the 22nd chapter, we're going to come back as he leaves the two servants there. And the Hebrews 11th chapter makes it very clear that he thought God was going to raise him. So notice here, in this what we have is we have God. So the question is, was God doing something immoral? When God asked him to offer his son, was he doing something immoral? Well, I guess it depends what perception uh, or what perspective you're viewing that from. And then when we see Abraham, he didn't see, see it as an immoral act at all. He saw it as a way that God was going to show his power. And what did he do? He trusted the power and the morality of God. Very important to see about that particular instance. In other words, great faith was illustrated in that particular story. And you remember that God stayed his hand and, and he did not take his life and... 
God knew that he could do that. And that could come into that discussion also. So when we look at the standard morality, think of some things that God can't do. In Hebrews, the sixth chapter and verse 17, it's impossible for God to lie. In other words, in Isaiah, the fifth chapter and verse 20, there have always been men and women that would look at evil and call it good and look at good and call it evil. So someone says, well, if God's a standard morality, how do we know that God's not just looking at something that's evil and saying, because I'm God, I'm going to call it good. He can't lie. Do you trust the character of God that God cannot lie? And so therefore, if God says something is moral, that something is good, something should be done, it comes down to the fact, do you trust that God cannot lie? God cannot call evil good. I know we're placing a lot of trust in God. And I'll say this lightly. If you can't trust God, who can you trust? He's never let us down. He has always been faithful. He is loving. He is powerful. But what we're about to get into for the rest of this time, I want to remind you of Romans, the 11th chapter, verse 22, where we are urged to know the goodness and the what? Severity of God. And if we're going to understand difficult questions like this, one of the things that may be and I don't know, there may, there, may be, there may not be a person in this room that this is hard for you to grasp, but my guess is there's going to be a few here that this is hard for you to grasp. God's severity is very severe. He can still be loving. He can still be just. He can still be gracious. He can still be merciful. But it does not take away his severity. His severity is part of his justice. And so the question is, who has the right to create the standard of morality? Do you trust him? And do you trust his measure of justice when he believes that certain things ought to be punished in a severe way? Do you trust that he is doing the right thing? Even if you say, I wouldn't do it that way. Can you humbly say, but I respect and trust God because I realize I'm not God. So let's move forward here as we think about, can you trust God even if he says, now's the time to kill? Uh, let me illustrate this a few ways. And honestly, these illustrations will fall short and we'll just go right into scripture here. You know, there are places that it's absolutely wrong. It's morally wrong for you to go. If the president is on a plane, it's called Air Force One. At that particular time, it becomes morally wrong for you to enter that plane. But now you could some way gather some kind of clearance through, through the, the Secret Service or, or the White House. I don't know what it would be, but whoever had the authority could sign off on it. And you know what? What was formerly immoral now is moral because the one who had the power granted that to you. You could illustrate the same thing by looking at the pre-check at TSA lines at airports. You know, there are a lot of people that walk through those, and there are a lot of people that can't walk through those. What about if you can't walk through those, what are they going to say when you get there? You can't do this. It's wrong for you to even try to do this. You need to go back around to the other line. Well, what if, what if you want to start doing it? Well, you go through the procedure, you do the background checks, you pay the nominal fee, and you know what? Next thing you know, you have approval. 
The, the one in charge says, now you can walk through this. The Mount Julia Church of Christ has a checking account. The elders have deemed just a few people the right to sign checks for that account. It would be morally wrong for me to sign a check on that account. I'm not approved. Now the elders could decide for someone to be approved and what would have been wrong for them to do yesterday would be right for them to do today because it has been approved. We need to recognize that whenever God issues severe punishment, it's not right for you and I to issue that severe punishment. It's only right if the one who has the power to issue that punishment says, that is the punishment that is going to be handed down. And so if God says it's time to kill, is it time to kill? You remember the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20th chapter, we mentioned these this morning. In verse 3, we were, the children of Israel told to have no other gods before them. And verse 4, not to have any kind of carved images. And verse 5, they should not bow down to them because God is a jealous God. The next slide, we see visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Stop there. Did you get that? God, we know you don't want us to bow down before any other images, any other gods. What are you going to do if we do? I'm going to visit your iniquities. That's the way God is saying, I am going to punish you severely. That is his kinder and gentle way to say, it will be a horrible day for you if you begin to bow down to other gods. Doesn't matter if you agree with it or disagree with it. It's going to be severe punishment. And we see throughout scripture that that's what happened. In Exodus, the 32nd chapter, we don't go very far from the time that he gave them the Ten Commandments. And you remember, he was up on the mountain. We mentioned him going up on the mountain this morning. While he was up on the mountain, you remember that Aaron took a collection of gold. He made the golden calf. And out of there, that's the 32nd chapter in verse 4. Now let's go to the 32nd chapter in verse 10. God was so angry, he sent Moses back down, and this way he told Moses, Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So now he says, I'm going to destroy all of them, and Moses, I'm just going to start working to rebuild a nation just through you. Now you remember that Moses pled with him because of the way it would look to Egypt the way it would make God look bad toward Egypt. He pled with him to spare some of Israel. And so what was the punishment that day? Well, in verse 26 of Exodus, the 32nd chapter, he is speaking to the Levites. In verse 27, he said, the Lord God of Israel said, let every man put his sword on his side, go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Death penalty was the punishment for bowing down to other gods that God considered a just punishment. 
Morally, they had done wrong. They had disobeyed what God said to do. Being moral and just, the punishment was the death penalty. Now, you know, part of the question that we were addressing, is God racist? Understand this very clearly. I know there's some things a little bit difficult in some of this to fully comprehend, but let me tell you something that's not hard to comprehend. One thing for certain, God may have been too severe in some people's opinion, but he wasn't anywhere close to being racist because you know what? He was just as quick to issue the death penalty to his own Israel as he was to what we sometimes call the foreign nations. And so the title of this lesson can be put to rest right now because you can just look in passage after passage after passage where the same way that he dealt with the Canaanites and their severity, he had already done that with the children of Israel in the severe way, severe way in which he handled them. Now, do you think the death penalty is too severe? Well, it really doesn't matter what you and I think. God is the one that from the beginning and all three ages of time has commanded and himself executed the death penalty. You know, we a lot of time think about the, the time of the children of Israel. But on this next slide, you remember before Israel was a chosen nation, and we sometimes call that the patriarchal age, the greatest execution of all time was when an entire world was executed except for one family. And it was God saying, because of your wickedness, you are worthy of death. And he passed out the death penalty. When we look in Genesis, the ninth chapter, and they were coming off of the ark, God made it very clear that the death penalty was to be in play. We've already mentioned the children of Israel by no means is this a complete list, but it's very clear in the law that he gave Israel that if you kidnapped someone and sold them as a slave, your punishment was to be the death penalty. Murder, death penalty. A false teacher, a false prophet. Tell somebody you're a prophet of God and then teach them something that's not of God. God said that person is to be executed immediately. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, rape, prostitution, all of those were to be death penalty. Then to the Christian dispensation, uh, and we see in Acts the fifth chapter, Ananias and Sapphira, they too were executed by God because they lied about the gift that they give that they gave and about the purchase sale of property. And so we see that as I've said already, you might disagree with the severity of God, but God dealt in the same type of punishment whether it was his own people like Ananias and Sapphira or if it were those that were not quote his people. So we look at this and say, who has the authority to create that standard morality? And it comes back to, do I believe God does? In Numbers, the 31st chapter, uh, let's, let's get back to this idea of a nation. 
and about why he would allow entire nations to be executed. And, and you can probably kind of either you already know it already or if not, you can kind of see where this is going. Well, let's let the scriptures take us. Number the 31st chapter, see in verse 17, they were given the command, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately, but keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. This is a passage where they had gone out and they had destroyed this nation, at least all of the men that were soldiers had been destroyed. And the women and the children had been brought back. But then when they were brought back, they were told, hey, we need to correct this situation because you were not supposed to bring anyone back. You can let the young girls stay alive, but you're going to take the boys' lives and you're going to take the women's lives. Why? What would the reasoning be? Well, when we see in this very same chapter in verse 1, we read that it was the Lord speaking this to Moses and what he said was take vengeance on the Midianites. And then when Moses went and spoke to the people at the end of verse three, he said, arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. In other words, the very fact of them going into war against Midian was because God was saying, this is my punishment for them. This is real important. You understand that God never told Israel to go out and destroy a nation that did not already deserve the death penalty. Now that's very important to understand. Israel was being chosen by God to execute the punishment for God's wrath against nations that were worthy of death. As a matter of fact, if you look there in the 31st chapter in verse 16, we see that even the women are mentioned being worthy of death because of what they did back in the 25th chapter. Turn back in your Bibles to the 25th chapter and notice what it said in verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. When you skip down to verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord. Now, right now he's talking about the Israelites. So in, in Numbers 25, the Israelites are punished. And so they go out and they hang all the offenders. In verse 5, he says to the judges of Israel, every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And we read later on in that chapter, and we see that they did what God told them to do, and they executed the death penalty on 24,000 of their men. And so now when you go over a few chapters later and you see God saying, I want you to destroy all these people and the women are brought back, God says, no, no, no. They deserve to die. Don't you remember what happened? And we're going to finish the punishment that they deserve. You can think it's too severe. But God 
didn't. The severity of God is real. We, if we are to know God, must know the goodness and the severity of God. Well, that didn't answer the question about the little boys, did it? Why were the little boys slain? We laid some groundwork last week for this, and so I won't go in as deeply on this. And so if there's some things said here, maybe you could go back. And, and we covered a little bit of this last week, but we'll hit on this again. And, and the only way that we could understand and even appreciate this is we've got to go to a higher level. Remember Isaiah, the 55th chapter, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, or our thoughts are not God's thoughts. His ways are so much higher than our ways. And, and if we're going to look at this only from an earthly perspective, we cannot understand what was happening here. We see it from an eternal perspective, and that first line comes into play. The young boys would be saved eternally. Now, if you're looking at the big picture, not the child in the park, if you're the adult in the park, what would be a blessing for those children that have been growing up generation after generation, following in the footsteps of their fathers? Because look at number two, they would avoid growing up to be enemies of God. Remember Proverbs 22 and 6? Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Do you realize that that's true in the positive sense, but it's also true in the negative sense? When entire nations are evil, it would be a very, very, very rare thing that the next generation would turn out righteous. Now, if that was going to happen, the Almighty God would know it. But that's not the rule of thumb. That's why it's so important for us to recognize as parents and grandparents, when God says, I will visit your sins to the third and fourth generation, that's God's way of saying, hey, you want to be apathetic in your relationship with me and raise kids that are apathetic? Just know that your introduction of this sin of apathy is going to visit not only your kids, but I'll be visiting your grandkids and your great grandkids. What is God saying? It's hard to turn around a generation of people. That's what God is saying. You want to do the right thing? Invest in you and your family. Invest richly and deeply in your children because it's a lot easier to raise them to be faithful than to hope that your grandchildren will some way come back to God when your children don't. That's what he's spelling out, reading between the lines in many of these Old Testament passages. So what about these young men? Well, these young men, they were going to be saved eternally. They were going to avoid growing up to be enemies of God. And when we look at this from Israel's perspective, they would be spared of more enemies in the future because these children most likely would grow up to be like their parents. Let me give you a very uncomfortable hypothetical situation. I'm not giving you this to make you feel comfortable. I'm giving you this to say, lest you try to point a finger at God and say, oh, this is so easy to see how God may be making a mistake. How about we throw this out? I want you to imagine you have many children and one of your children is going around slowly and killing your other children. What should you do if you really love your family? You love all your children. You even love the child that's killing your other children. 
what should you do? While you're contemplating that, this child has now started killing your grandchildren also. And in time, will kill your great-grandchildren. You know what God says that He would do in the days of Israel? He says, I'll just have to execute my child that is going around and killing my other children. And that is how God dealt in His vengeance toward those that did not love Him and did not serve Him and would go around harming His other children. So when we think of that in a hypothetical way, I'd like for you to also see the very fact that the Lord is gracious. It's real important. If you started getting sleepy because you're thinking, hey, he keeps repeating himself, I'm going to stop repeating myself here. And before we close, I want you to grasp this, okay? This is very important to understand. Not an entirely different topic, but a, another slice of this pie of this very same thing uh, that is really important. You remember Psalm 145 and 8 that says the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The passages that we've just read tonight, you may say, I, I don't know if I can really understand why we say God is slow to anger with some of the passages that we've read tonight. Well, Let's understand this. Let's look at an example, just one in scripture of an individual, then of a city, and then of a nation. On this next slide, let's see. You remember when Jericho was, was being destroyed, which by the way, I have nothing to base what I'm about to tell you upon except just reading the scriptures and wondering, okay? I'm just wondering out loud with you. I wonder when they marched around that city for several days. I wonder if that could have been almost like an invitation. Do any of you inside those walls want to change? We know that you know about the Almighty God. One of your ladies that live in there, they told us that you know all about the Almighty God. Forty years had gone by, but they hadn't forgotten that it was their God that dried up the sea. That's what it says right there in Judges. That's why Rahab said, I don't want to die with my people. I know how powerful your God is, and I know that we're going to die. And she asked for loving kindness. Would your God extend kindness to me? And you know what? Our God extended kindness to Rahab and she was able to step out of that society and into God's people. Not only to save her life, but when you open up your New Testament, you come to Matthew, the first chapter, and you see the genealogy of Jesus. And who do you read is in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab, listen, I don't know how God can make it any clearer to say, I am long-suffering. I gave people the opportunity to come back and repent. I wonder, I can't help but believe, if there would have been others in Jericho that would have said, you know what, we believe in that God too. I believe God would have gave them the opportunity. You remember Nineveh? The capital city of Syria which was their enemy. And when Jonah was sent there by God to preach to them, they were going to be destroyed unless they repent. God believed they were worthy of the death penalty, but his graciousness gave them the opportunity to repent. And that city repented and their execution was stayed. And then we see the example, uh, one example of the Amorites 
Did you know that God, keep in mind, he can see the future. That doesn't mean that he comes in and forces people to do things differently just because he sees it. But he could see the future. And he knew that there was going to be a time in the future where the Amorites were going to become a people that was worthy of death. But I want you to notice when we read in Genesis, the 15th chapter, well, I'll tell you what, I've got my, my mind out of order with the slides. Let me just mention to you, we'll back into it this way. And Joshua, the 10th chapter is where they were going to be destroyed. And Joshua, the 10th chapter is, is where God told Israel to go out and destroy the Amorites. And you remember the, that God sent a horrible hailstorm that literally killed more of the enemy soldiers than what the Israelites soldiers killed of the enemy soldiers. But they weren't getting the job done before the night was falling. And remember, this is where Joshua prayed and asked God, stop the sun. And he stopped the sun so that they could finish the task. And, and this is a place where five of the kings were executed. He told them to put their foot on their neck. And then he came around and he brutally executed those kings because that's what God wanted him to do. And you say, wow, see, they, they were just enemies and God, but they weren't always so wicked that God would allow that to happen. Go back when God was talking to Abraham. Look in Genesis, the 15th chapter. He's talking about these very same people. In Genesis, the 15th chapter, in verse 16, he says, But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This was said probably about four to six hundred years before that occasion we just read about there in Joshua. And God is talking and he says, he says here to Abraham, he says, you know, this group of people right here, one of these days, they are going to be destroyed, but they're not wicked enough right now. And so I will not give them the death penalty yet. That is how God's severity works. And so the intermarriage the intermarriages had to do with whether or not nations were so wicked that they would pull God's people away from him and into idolatry. It didn't have anything to do with the color of their skin. It didn't have anything to do with, oh, oh, you're of that nationality. God doesn't like you. It had everything to do with, will that nationality pull you away from God. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods so that the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Again, death penalty there. Why? Because God says we are not going to allow this to happen. What are we not going to allow to happen? We're not going to allow Israel, remember the narrative that runs all way through the scriptures, through Abraham's lineage, King David would be born, but eventually the King David, Jesus, the son of David would be born. God's not going to let that lineage be destroyed. And he knew that if he did not put boundaries on who they would marry, that lineage would be annihilated from their relationship with God. And so that's why the protection was put in place. You need some proof as to how bad it can get. Solomon, you remember, was considered the wisest man of his day. But read about him in old age. Are you listening? I don't mean this disrespectful. I mean this as, as a loving challenge. Any of you that are older, 
You think, wow, I've, I've lived a Christian life so long. I can, I can kind of coast right now because I'm just in the habit of doing the right thing. Read the story of Solomon. 1 Kings, the 11th chapter. In his older age, he ignored what God said about not marrying the wrong foreign ladies. And he took those women into his life. He started helping them build their temples that they wanted to worship. And then the scripture says his heart was changed and his heart was not like his father's heart, King David. And you know, when we go to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we have this list of the great people of faith. And I can't help but notice Solomon's not mentioned there. Now, I don't know if that means that he never repented. I'm just telling you that when we read in the old covenant and we see the talk about Solomon, we see a man who started out great and served strong. And we see a man who late in his life stopped trusting God. Oh, I know that's what God says, but it doesn't apply to me. I know what God says about not marrying these women, but it it doesn't apply to me. And it did apply to him. But then finally, I'll just mention to you this. Last thing I'll mention to you is if you want some proof that it wasn't a racist thing about who they married, Numbers, the 12th chapter is a really interesting example. It's where Moses married an Ethiopian. She had been very dark skinned. His sister, Marion and Aaron rose up and spoke against him because of who, because of this Ethiopian. You remember what God did? He challenged them, number one, because they challenged the prophet of God, Moses. And he gave her leprosy. And Moses had to plead with God to spare her of a death of leprosy. And God spared her of that. You want to make a New Testament application, a 21st century application? What God doesn't want you to do is intermingle in any relationships, whether it's in marriage or business or close friendships, that will pull you away from God. And don't pull the old thing. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm so strong and I'm so faithful. I don't have to worry. Nobody's going to pull me away. You start intermingling yourself into close-knit, tight relationships with people who are not Christians, and you will find yourself struggling a lot more than what you ever thought you would struggle. Hope that helps. Tonight, is there anything that we can do to help us tonight enjoy the goodness of God and avoid the severity of God? God's grace reaches down and saves us from the severity that we deserve. But if we do not love God and submit ourselves to God, the only option that is left is for us to experience the severity of God. I hope we believe that. And I hope you've let that settle deep in your heart. 
as beautiful and gracious and merciful and loving as God is, that's what we enjoy when we submit ourselves to God. And as severe and just as God is to punish sin, that's what we receive when we don't accept the grace and mercy of God. And so I don't know if you're going to leave here tonight and say, wow, the preacher, he preached a, a negative, depressing lesson. We need to see that. We need to see the goodness and the severity of God. Tonight, if we can help in any way, come as we stand as we sing.